0: Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gurn, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career, on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia.
1: Hello to all intelligent life and otherwise. Welcome to The Brainstem Show on The Workforce Show at WERA, 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington, and online at brainstemshow.org. I'm Aaron Berciaga, and here we go. This is The Brainstem Show. You've tuned in because the game has changed. In schoolhouses, on playing fields, in boardrooms, and on battlefields. Welcome to the matrix. Welcome to a world defined by science, technology, engineering, and math. I'm your personal data scientist and AI engineer. And in this show, we talk and even debate a bit with leaders in STEM on news, perspective, experiences, and career advice. We'll have some pop culture and sci-fi fun along the way. Let's dive in to today's show. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Brett Fraser. Brett's the Vice President of Business Development for Artificial Intelligence at REI, right? Yes, Aaron, that's
0: correct. I'm mostly focused on AI-enabled kayaking and fishing equipment. <laughs> Not really, not REI at all.
1: Perfect. Uh, I introduce every guest slightly off. Where are you at, uh, Brett? And what are you leading business development in AI for?
0: I'm at NCI, where we navigate, collaborate, and innovate. And mostly I'm focused on artificial intelligence deployment, development,
1: and growth for our
0: client base.
1: Awesome. In a STEM show like this, you're a sweet guest. You've got a number of publications I was noticing. Uh, Tell us about one that's your favorite or particularly relevant today with what's been happening in the news and, and in our field. Sure.
0: I wrote one about the uh, robot apocalypse through AI. I've also written others on generational gaps in the workforce, but maybe unsurprisingly, but the favorite that I ever wrote was, I learned everything about management from Little League Baseball. I coached Little League for over 15 years as I Tiger woods my son up through the Texas leagues and uh, figured if anybody's going to screw up his sports legacy, it's going to be his dad. So I dove in. And I found out that oftentimes in building a corporate team or a professional team, it's just like building a baseball team. You've got to know which of your players needs to play right field. You've got to know who needs to be on the mound and win. And you've also got to have a really good general on the field called a catcher. And of course, who can hit really well and who might need some help? Using those same fundamentals that I used to build a baseball team, it's the same thing I do to build international teams now.
1: Oh man, you're the Billy Bean of Little League. Somewhat. <laughs> you figured it out before Billy Bean, maybe in the A's. <laughs> so, you know, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. I think that's interesting because not only were you referencing the skills and, and how you assemble a team, but I think there's also an opportunity to see the data in scheduling and all sorts of other game characteristics that are relevant for uh, the baseball, the games, and the players, how and when they're played. What else did you see kind of as you open that matrix in that Pandora's box, perhaps?
0: The data tells you what you need to tweak in the relationships, not just the relationships with your players, but the relationships with the parents as well. (laughs) It's the psychology in the boardroom that can be also used on the playing field. I had a very good assistant coach named Tim Hyatt. He was somewhat my psychologist on the field. And Tim's best thing was basically helping kids that needed to cry because you never want to cry on the field, but sometimes you really need to, especially when you strike out, especially when you get out after hitting a triple and getting tagged out at third. That hurts a 10 to 12 year old boy. So Tim would take him over by the side and say, you know what, you did well. At least you get to get up to bat again, just like in the corporate world. Now the relationships with the parents are much like relationships in managing your manager. You've got to realize that even though their son's playing their heart out, or their daughter might be playing their heart out, they're never going to be a professional ball player. There's 785 out of all 15 billion of us here in the U.S. that actually get to be a a, a baseball player. So you've got to give them what they need in sports. Have fun, do good, do your best, and learn what it's like to be part of a team, just like I do each day at NCI.
1: I I think that's so perceptive and, and really well said. What you just said about having fun, giving them a team is exactly what I've learned. And, and honestly, through a bunch of bunch of bumps and bruises that uh, that you can't just tell somebody to suck it up and accept what the math tells them. It's yeah. about giving them that analytic hug. Every once in a while, it's going right. to be okay. Agreed. Good. Well, you know, a theme for today's show might be automation, uh, the effects of flash boys and thinking fast and slow, and the monetization, weaponization, democratization of data tech and human hypersystems. systems. So Brett, automation with all of its names and acronyms and flavors As it accelerates, what is the good, the bad, and ugly of that type of decision making? Interesting question
0: to me. I've been in the automation game in three different aspects or facets since 2006. I started my automation journey at Cisco Systems, where I was global head of video services, and I needed a way to do more with less people. People kept quitting after I'd trained them. And we realized that people made many, many mistakes. And so we had to get some consistency in our operations. We settled on the basics called scripting back in 2006. Well, fast forwarding, and after you've automated 75 to 90% of your operations, as an executive manager, you really become a babysitter approving PTO requests or or helping people with their daily schedules. Well, I I wanted more. So I jumped ship and moved to my supplier, IPsoft at that time. And I became global head of automation, where I started building automations and moving a, a small fledgling automation program into an international power, a force that was to be reckoned with in the industry. Now, from refining that program, from building that program and growing it, and creating partner enablement programs to teach the likes of Dell, Cisco, AT&T, NTT, IBM, and others how to automate for themselves, it became evident that you know there's there's other things that we could do out there. So I was a consumer of automation, then a provider of automation, and then I moved into the federal world where I became a systems integrator. And automation could be a framework for many of the things that we needed to add to. A lot of people call it AI now, but sometimes it's just plain automation. So the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, For good, I would call out the impact that automation can make. Like I mentioned at Cisco, I was losing resources. Humans are fallible. Humans make errors. And unfortunately, humans can only roughly work eight to 10 hours a day, two hours with dedicated focus. Then they got to go on break. Then they got to go to lunch. And by the way, I've got to take off this day and I'm going to have vacation. And it's just terrible. So with automation, you can count on it. It's there 24-7. It's there doing 3,000 things at once. Whereas I can maybe do three to five on a good day downhill with the wind behind me. Now, the bad, obviously, is the time that it takes to get results. I don't know of anyone who says, I'm purchasing automation today, and tomorrow I'll be 60% fully automated. It's just not like, it's not going to happen that way. So what we've got to do is we've got to realize that it takes time to see these results. It's much like a marriage. You don't get to be perfectly happy with 20 years of marriage In a first year, it takes that time. Same thing with automation. Now, the ugly gets to be the planning that it takes in order to get those results to show the impact, to get from good to bad, then to ugly, and then on to perfection. Now, the planning often takes communication as well as understanding of what you do. There's times that i go to clients and say okay great we're happy to automate for you now let me see the runbook that you follow what are the steps that you use in the processes you have and what are those processes called and how frequently do you operate those processes and how long does it take a human to to do that work and then of course uh, how many times each day do you perform that function they don't know they don't have the answers some guy named Tim might some ask paul he comes in on tuesday Well, I asked Paul and he goes, yeah, we don't even use those processes anymore. They're already outdated. So the good, the bad, and the ugly might equal automation, but planning is the key. You've got to communicate with the groups inside the enterprise and sometimes externally, as well as hoping for the impact to show the results over time.
1: I love the good, the bad, and the ugly. Great points there. I like that you seem to articulate a lot of use cases where automation was really beneficial, especially in those first projects you had around workforce management and even Little League. The bad, the time, I think that's a really interesting point to make. People want it now. Hmm. Uh, There's a lot of the instant gratification of the generation in business today. We really don't necessarily appreciate everything we have in the first world, but we expect everything to operate as if it was ready, shiny, and polished for the first world. Tell me a little bit about the time and how have you managed – both your clients' expectations, and how do you manage your team's aspirations in terms of that? What what kind of benchmarks or yardsticks do you put in the grounds to get everyone to believe that there is gonna be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? They just need to be patient. Huh.
0: Uh, I've got many lessons learned there regarding client expectations and uh, team buy-in. So the greatest thing that I can always go back to is my first foray into automation, and that's at Cisco. Client expectations. I was the client. And when the supplier came to me and said, yes, we can automate for you. What do you need automated? Well, I don't know. <laughs> what can you automate? It's sort of that, where's my Chinese restaurant menu of options I can choose from? Let me point at, at what, I, what I can buy. But it's not the way automation works. You have to understand what you need to do
1: before you start planning to do it. And so I- This, being, was, this was circa what year? 2006. So people really weren't pitching the use cases yet, were they? Not at all. So you had to
0: provide it. Right. Absolutely. So we had to come up with it. But in doing so, I thought me being the expert at video services, telepresence within Cisco, I knew what needed to be automated. So I gave them the list and they automated. And within the first year, we got 20% full automation. And I thought, wow, 20% in a year? So to be 100%, it's going to take me five more years. And and they said, no, that's not the way it works. It's a a declining increase curve over time. You might have 20% to start off with, but we could have done 40. I said, what do you mean 40? Because my time machine wasn't working at that point. I couldn't go back to the start. (laughs) I thought, oh, no, I've now lost momentum. Well, what do you mean? And so they said well perhaps we could focus on more triage aspects or back end data manipulation perhaps diagnostic work through scanning a syslog and finding keywords to help engineers troubleshoot better and i said no 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 no, no. let's let's just do exactly what's on my list next you know yeah. creating my pipeline and so they did and the next year, we got up to 30% automation. Now, here I am two years into So you only got 10% gain yes, in the right. second year? Yes, yes, yes. And the reason being was because me, the client, I was in my own way. Once I realized that I should be very good at video services, and the automation provider should be very good at automation scoping, development, deployment, and management, I realized, you know what, let me move out of the way and let the experts do what the experts do. And sure enough, that third year, we ramped up to 65% full automation within our high critical P1 and P2 instances.
1: So, 35% gain in year three. I think that's interesting for everyone to note. You went from, uh, what was it? Uh, 25 to start, 25, 35, 35 then and, to and then to 65. Interesting, because you got out of your way. That's right, yes. The client
0: expectations was, I'm the expert. I know what you should automate. I'm the one that bought it, so automate what I tell you. And they did, and I failed. Now, once I moved out of the way and they started saying, perhaps we could do systems upgrades, fully automated. Even though it wasn't one of the largest ticket generators, offloading the work that needed to be done so the humans could focus on more complex, more strategic, or more creative activities allowed major gains. I didn't think about what was going on in the background. I only knew what was on my desk at that moment.
1: So I think you would probably agree that what you were doing year one and year two was a little bit of business evolution. But what you did year three and what you're telling the audience and what we should focus in on across STEM, it is science. It's about revolution. And transformation, yes. That's great. The Brainstem Show is brought to you by The Workforce Show, airing new programming every Monday and Thursday at 9 a.m. on WERA 96.7 FM. Tune in for The Brainstem Show and its affiliate programs on those days and time. Great points. Let's take a break right now on the show and have time for a segment we call Cue the Music, Charlie. Nerd Combat. This is how it works. I'll pose you the question posing as your local-friendly neighborhood skeptic. You'll have 90 seconds to respond. Our heroic skeptic, oftentimes ill-advised, will respond over 15 seconds and you'll have 30 seconds for rebuttal. Make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, are you ready? Of course. Charlie. Round one, fight! Automation missed its opportunity, didn't it? Didn't it not sink deep enough with industry? AI is here. Automation needs to step aside, as in, let's disregard those bags of old software. Your response?
0: I would call bulls**t, Aaron. Uh, Honestly, uh, there's multiple companies with massive offerings and uh, huge... Lumps of cash that they've been collecting, such as Automation Anywhere, UiPath, and Blue Prism that would argue and uh, shoot you down on that one. Now, it's been interesting, their evolution that they've made, considering they came out in roughly early 2000s to make it almost 20 years later and be the force behind the frameworks for most Fortune 500 companies. So RPA, it certainly hasn't moved to the wayside yet. It's not sort of an AI bursting into the door saying, move out of my way, RPA or automation. Automation is the framework that AI is built upon. So it definitely didn't miss its impact. It's made its impact within the industry because you can't have AI without it.
1: Great. Major statement in 60 seconds or so. Okay. Well, now I'll invite the uh, skeptic to respond. Skeptic says, well, it seems like RPA is just a dumb form of AI. Isn't A isn't RPA just AI's dumb cousin? No, not at all. So with
0: AI, you've got to replicate human function, seeing, hearing, doing, hearing. I said hearing twice. Seeing, hearing, doing, acting, and learning, whereas RPA simply acts. It might collect data for analysis later. It might perform a task, but by no means does it speak. By no means does it learn. It simply does exactly what you tell it to do
1: fight. Nice job. Well, you know, just to be clear for audience and for you, the views of that friendly neighborhood skeptic, oftentimes ill-advised, do not represent the views or opinions of Aaron Bersiaga. (laughs) A few years ago, Brett, as we move on, the term automation emerged, just as that skeptic kind of brought to bear. Then big data. Next, we talked about cloud computing. As you just shared, artificial intelligence was next or is now. We seem to be hurtling towards quantum computing. IBM recently uh, announced the first commercially available quantum computer. All interesting, all good, all part of technology, innovation, and revolution. But Brett, in the next three to five years, what do you think we will be talking about? What will be the conversations driving NCI's agenda? In
0: three to five years regarding quantum computing, I don't see much practical business application. But five to ten years, that may be a different story. Now, I see an evolution in the expected technologies and services. And what I mean by expected is right now we have segmented technologies. You must integrate one with the other. So it's soon going to be within three to five years, expected that all back-end solutions should have a front-end with a friendly UX or UI. It's also expected that advanced analytics should come standard as part of any technical solution. Remember that question, does it come with reporting that we used to get asked back in the 90s and early 2000s? Now, also, I think that it will be expected that AI should be rigidly defined and the general practitioners will be replaced by the specialist surgeons offering more targeted solutions. And then lastly, it should be expected that solutions will come with services to manage and support them. AI as a service will be the new AI. Businesses and clients must be able to focus on what they do best and allow AI companies to provide the
1: solutions and services. Brett, you said rigid and defined AI, and you said we expect persons to operate With these technologies, with a more precise scalpel to be those surgeons, I'm concerned that we're not requiring that same license and certification and even regulation around the AI surgeons that you described. What are your thoughts on that, and where do we go with that? It's a good question.
0: Now, there have been some headways made into the ethics of AI, as well as the standards necessary to say, is this AI or is this just plain automation or is it a really fancy script or an expert system? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously with those standards that need to be set, we can rely on NIST or the National Institute of Standards and Technology to help guide us there. But that means someone's going to have to enforce those standards. There must be a policing agency. Back in the 90s, uh, we were enforced with ISO standards, ANSI standards, and CAP standards in IT practices to make sure we did it the right way, even had a shared vocabulary that we followed along regarding incident change and problem
1: management. Why don't we have that today? I, I read a lot, a uh, call to AI and ethics in AI, and I'm a part, I actually called for an AI Congress, but why have you and I and our peers... But unable been unable to grab that golden ring to this day. What needs th- to change?
0: I think it's because things have moved too fast for us to sit back and go, wait, let's define and let's standardize. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we're going to become more innovative by not making it rigid, but there does need to be some specialization. Like I was mentioning And what to expect in three to five years, I know that you can't just go to, we'll say, an AI doctor and say, doc, my ear hurts. And he says, well, stop listening. You're going to have to go to an AI surgeon and say, I have tinnitus and a ringing in my ear. And they're going to say, let me put you through some algorithmic tests to make sure it's tinnitus. That's the big difference that I see
1: coming up. Brett, that's a really great point. I love that illustration. I think we could dive deeper on ethics. We'll, we'll probably do that. I'd like to have you back as a panel, because this is a particularly salient subject for us to get into, and I promise we'll do that. Let me take us on another tangent. It's not a STEM show without a space and pop culture, quote, quiz. So name the person or character I'm about to quote coming from history or Hollywood. Are you ready? Yes, I am. You will never learn Vulcan. Your tongue is too human.
0: I think that's uh, a duet by Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton.
1: (laughs) Very Uh, close. Very close. It's Spock, isn't it? (laughs) It's actually Spock's father, Sarek. Fair enough. To Michael Burnham in Star Trek's Discovery premiere, which in and of itself is very controversial. Um, The episode called The Vulcan Hello. But let me go back to that. And I just don't share that uh, being a Trekkie. I share that because I think there is a little bit of nuance and opportunity for us to understand and appreciate that quote. Again, it was, You will never learn Vulcan, said a complete Vulcan to a human-Vulcan hybrid. He said to her, your tongue is too human. So Brett, slow jam on that with me a little bit. What parallels does it have for our industry? Not being just a cute sci-fi quote. Why do we, are, why do we see ourselves in it? How could we see ourselves in it? I would counter that
0: statement with a statement by uh, the Jedi Grandmaster Yoda. <laughs> nice. There is no try, only do. So while he may never speak true Vulcan because he's half human, well... I'm 100% human, and I know that as long as we try, trying is part of doing. So thereby, perhaps we can get good enough at it. I myself am never going to be an AI expert at the upper echelon levels. But again, I keep climbing. I keep trying. I keep learning. I keep doing. So while the technical side of me knows you just have to put it into practice, the human side of me wants to know, what's the fun in that? Let's take leaps forward. Let's go beyond standard definition of AI and let's push those boundaries. Let's see what we can test within the ethical boundaries of ethical hacking and AI and see what can we do with that social
1: media data. Uh, I want to make sure that we're ahead of others. I think that's a great response because you're right. Folks come to a lot of folks who wish to practice data science and say, you will never speak AI. You are too operations researchy, or you will never speak AI. You are too much RPA. Well, guess what? Just like you said, sure. Grandmaster Yoda would say, there is doing in the trying. Yes. And so that's what the show's about. We bring Star Trek and Star Wars together. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> now, the interesting
0: thing is it takes a village to raise a child. So it in AI and in data science, you can't just think from a data science perspective. You've got to consider other perspectives at the table. What about the executives paying for that and the influencers hoping to grow that solution? You've got to consider them as well, just like the parents in the stands at a baseball field.
1: Awesome. You know what? I was going to uh, ask you another question, but let's wrap up with this because I like how you kind of brought it full circle. I think our audience would appreciate hearing from you, maybe one or two books that you've read recently that you would recommend. So Brett, read any good books recently?
0: Yes, I absolutely have. Reading is something that I spend at least an hour and a half doing every single day, typically from 5 to 6.30 each morning or at 8 to 9.30 at night. So please don't call me during those hours. But the first and foremost book that I've read recently (laughs) that I absolutely enjoyed was The Most Human Human, What Artificial Intelligence Teaches Us About Being Alive by Brian Christian. Now, uh, I'm very interested in the early days of AI thought. Rene Descartes in 1637, Alan Turing in the 1950s, and everybody in between thinking, well, how can we make a machine that can convince us it's human? But in the most human human, how do you define human? And how do you prove that you're human? It's really interesting. It's it's one thing for machines to trick humans, but what does that truly mean? So, what's more human than being human and how do we define the most human among us? I like to think where we are now compared to 10 years ago, humans see, say, hear, learn and act, but machines now see through OCR or computer vision, they say through natural language processing or natural language generation, they hear using text-to-speech, classifiers, and neural nets for intent detection, and they learn by machine learning and deep learning, and of course, they act, as I've talked about with RPA and automation. So in the book, Brian Christian, the author, was actually a participant in the Turing test or the for the Loebner Prize in 2009.
1: And his was job, he human?
0: Yes, he was. And his job was to convince the judges that he is human. <laughs> now, in a blind test, how would you prove that you're not a modern machine program to respond the way you do? How can we prove that we're not machines saying what we're saying now, if all we had to rely on was texting back and forth?
1: Well, I guess our audience will never be quite sure if Aaron Bersiaga and Brett Fraser aren't actually AI developing a radio show. Mind blown. Well, folks, uh, thank you for listening to the show today. Brett, thank you for being a guest. Where can we find out more information about you, what you do? You're always welcome to look
0: me up on LinkedIn. That's Brett Frazier, F-R-A-S-E-R. And uh, go to brettfrazier.com. Read more about my bio, some of my thought pieces, and you're always welcome to
1: reach out and see how I can help. Awesome. Thanks again, Brett. Remember, the game has changed, so tune in next time. We'll have more guests with news, perspectives, ethics, aspirations, in science, technology, engineering, and math. See you next time. Special thanks to WERA 96.7 FM, Charlie Ross, our audio engineer, Cindy Gern, our producer. I'm Aaron Berciaga. The game has changed, so tune in again next time to The Brainstem Show.
0: Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at CareerCentralOnline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.